Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello once again and welcome wherever you are in our great country or even around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray as advertised and we're on All Rise. I love that comment, but All Rise the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. As you've heard, if you've listened before, the idea, the thrust being that if we employ libertarian values, live and let live, don't tread on me, don't tread on anybody. Uh, Financial responsibility, social responsibility, uh, setting up... uh, Uh, things that work like uh, incentives and the rest uh, and not treading on others, we will all rise together. And today I am proud to say, in fact, I'm going to start by giving a definition or an answer. What is the most important thing in life, which is probably the most general question I could probably think of, but to me, it's gratification. Uh, It's not success. It's not money, it's not fame, it's not power. You can get gratification from those things, but you get gratification by knowing that the world is a somewhat better place because you have spent some time here. And my my guest today is one of the most solid, fine human beings that I've ever met. And he hasn't heard me say this directly, but now he is. Uh, it's my brother-in-law. It's Peter Frazier. He's been married to my wonderful sister, Robin, uh, for, what, 52 years, something like that now. But he is a successful husband, successful father, successful stockbroker. Uh, he's also then given back to society. He's on the the Alumni Association for the University of California. Uh, He is on the Save the Redwoods. He's on Mount Diablo. And in fact, I understand now he's actually with the Botanical Gardens at the University of California, the Bears. So, So at any rate, Peter, that's about as flattering a introduction I think as I've ever given, and and you're entitled to every word of it. Welcome to All Rise. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Cunado, and that's what I in fact, uh, I never met you until you were already married to my sister because I was in the Peace Corps. And so the first time I saw you, you came down to Los Angeles International Airport and I saw you through some plexiglass. But uh, I called you cuñado then because in Spanish, that means brother-in-law. There's also a connotation to it. It kind of means ladies' man or, or somebody like that, but uh, which you are a, a person man. But at any rate, give us a little bit about your background. Tell us, I know you went to Cal. I know you went to Columbia Business school, but just tell us a little bit about your background, how you ended up being a stockbroker. Well, I, I uh, grew up in Oakland, uh, and uh, uh, I, I, as you say, I went to University of California, Berkeley, and uh, my freshman year there, my dad died, and uh, back then, uh, a lot of companies didn't have uh, retirement funds. So we didn't have any retirement fund, and um, our family, uh, my mom, uh, uh, was left in a challenging position. Um, It also made me grow up about uh, five extra years, Uh, so I had to get through Cal, and then back then, as you know, Jim, um, 
we had to all go for two years in the military, which I did. I was in Army Intelligence over in uh, Seoul, Korea. And then I went to business school at Columbia Business School in New York City. And uh, uh, all that time, I just it was very important for me to get good grades because I couldn't uh, fall back on my, um, my mom uh, because of her financial situation. Um, I fortunately, I got a job with Smith Barney in New York and worked on Wall Street for a year, which was a exciting experience. And then, fortunately, uh, they sent me out to the San Francisco office. And um, my job there was to sell research to financial institutions like uh, banks, trust departments, retirement funds, um, investment counselors. And uh, I was traveling all over the West, from Denver to San Francisco to uh, Seattle to uh, San Diego, which was kind of fun, meeting a lot of very smart people running money uh, for their companies. And uh, But, you know, being uh, uh, in that type of business, it makes you very independent. I mean, everything counts on what kind of job you do, and there's uh, sometimes not a lot of people to help you. But fortunately, I liked it very much, and uh, things turned out very well for me. I eventually decided to uh, become an investment counselor where I was paid for a fee and worked with individual clients. What is your view with regard to the free enterprise system? And, uh, you know, people say, oh, it's crass. Oh, you're money grubbing. Oh, you know, you it's just profit before everything else. Uh, you've been heavily involved in the free market system, stocks and the rest. Uh, what is your view as to that? Because I know you have a social conscience. Uh, how do you combine the two? Well, that's a very good question. And uh, I, it's, it's a very thoughtful one, and it's a re- real one because – um, financial institutions uh, generally try and do the right thing, but uh, many of them, if they're on commission, sometimes their incentives are not 100% with the client. And I also find that a lot of financial institutions um, have lawyers that love to uh, make uh, their uh, financial statements so complicated that you can't understand uh-huh. them. Uh, and so I think you have to be very careful. If you notice, if you're buying insurance, there's never a life insurance policy that's exactly the same like the other one, so you can compare it with someone else. And a lot of insurance policies are like that. I'm not just picking on insurance policies, but, you know, the stockbrokers themselves, uh, they do not want to have a fiduciary responsibility They've been fighting this uh, for years, and if you work for a registered investment council, which is um, uh, registered with the SEC and charges only a fee, and that way their clients and your clients are aligned in the same place. There's a lot of discussion today 
uh, that, oh, we should go into socialism. And a lot of our young people feel that, oh, you know, from everyone according to their ability to everyone according to their need sort of thing, and that I'm entitled to this and entitled to that. Uh, you're as caring a person as I know, Cunado, but but uh, I, I assume that you agree with me that entitlements just don't work, that you need to have incentives and uh, uh, be able to, to profit from your own labor. Fair enough? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I think you need to have a capitalistic system where uh, there's opportunity and incentives to perform, but you also need regulation. Uh, pure um, capitalism uh, causes problems. And But I can also say on the other side, do you know any socialist state that has been successful when people don't have their skin in the game, they don't work very hard. And um, it's, just, it's just that way. And uh, it's interesting when someone is incentivized to work, uh, they do a better job at their, uh, with their employer. You mean, you mean the country of Venezuela is not doing very well today? Yeah, or or look, I mean, look at all the socialistic countries around the world. Look at look at uh, look at even Russia. Uh, they've never been work. successful. They've always had uh, some kind of whether it was the czar uh, or communism, uh, and they're still not doing well. Uh, well, you can look at the difference in between North Korea and South Korea, maybe for an example. Uh, exactly. Or- North or East Germany as opposed to former West Germany. But before we move on, Peter, uh, you were in the army in Korea. I've traveled quite a bit in my lifetime, but I've never been to Korea. Should I go? Absolutely. Korea Why? is one of the uh, three pillars, I think, in uh, Asia. Uh, everything started in China, and uh, China's always been the big dog uh, for a long, long time. Uh, with few exceptions. Uh, but the culture from China went down into Korea and then eventually got into Japan. And uh, unfortunately, Korea is in between Japan and China. And they're a peninsula. And so over the years, when Japan and China didn't get along, they just ran up and down the Korean peninsula and uh uh, created a lot of havoc. But uh, right now, uh, when I was there, I mean, there were dirt roads everywhere. It was five years after the Korean War was over. But I knew these people were educated. They were very smart. And they were very motivated. And I knew they were going to do well. And now Korea, with 60 million people, is one of the five best uh, economies in the world. Yes, yes. And it has uh, things to see from a, a, a tourist standpoint as well, I anticipate. But Oh, so, uh, you know, of course, I went all over. Uh, I had a lot. I worked with a lot of Korean people, and I went all over the country uh, looking at some of the temples. But you had to go on dirt roads, and uh, uh, the transportation was terrible. And now, uh, going from uh, Seoul to Busan, which is the second biggest city, uh, there's an eight-lane highway that's divided. Uh, it's just incredible what they've done. Their roads, their roads are cleaner than ours. Their uh, their streets are cleaner than ours. Uh, 
Uh, it's a strong technology company, uh, country, excuse me, and uh, they're just very bright, bright and successful people. Yeah, well, they're hardworking. They roll up their sleeves and, and do that. But let me bring you back to uh, finance, Peter, because uh, we saw the banking crisis back in, what, 2007, 2008. And my opinion, and you're closer to it by far than I am, it was in large part caused by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that even Congress back then was was saying, oh, we have to make the American dream available for everyone. We have to have home ownership for everyone. So they backed up loans that really transparently just were, were underwater and they gave they caused lots of banks to give loans to people that really couldn't afford them but they were insured by Fannie Mae Freddie Mac so if you are a responsible bank you don't give those loans but I do I'm not so responsible because why not you know we'll get our money back it's backed up by guaranteed by the federal government so sure why not we'll get all, all, all of our fees and then of course your shareholders look at you and say well wait a minute look what Gray's Bank is doing you should do this too so then the bankers start cutting corners and they did and there were some problems with that but am I am I describing it the way you would see it? Because you're closer than I. But I think that it was the the two the federal government that caused these problems that went, of course, worldwide. Well, I would modify that a little bit. Um, uh, if, as you can imagine, if you're running, let's say, the state of California retirement fund, which is a multi-billion-dollar. Um, uh, portfolio, if you're running that, you're not going to want to buy uh, Jim Gray's uh, $250,000 mortgage. Uh, And you just keep going on and on and on. And so uh, they were not very marketable, and people had to pay more money, a higher interest rate, uh, for the mortgages because they weren't marketable. The idea of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac was a very good one uh, when they, at the start. What they did is they took your mortgage and my mortgage and our neighbor's mortgage, and they put them all together and created a instrument, financial instrument, that was worth maybe $100 million. Well, that, that's the kind of thing that these big pension and profit-sharing funds would want to buy. And uh, so they would buy them. It was marketable, and they, 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 you could trade them anytime you wanted to. The problem with what happened uh, in 2007 and eight was more, in my opinion, the banks. Uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac can't possibly look at every single mortgage uh, visit with every single person that's getting the mortgage, they had to trust the banks. And initially, it worked very well. They would get AAA uh, mortgages, and they'd put a bunch of AAA mortgages and put them in a package and sell them to a pension and profit sharing fund. Then they'd get AA mortgages, and they'd put them all together and sell them. They'd get single-A mortgages. Then you go down in credit, and, you, and then some would get uh, BAA, and then maybe maybe someone that wanted to take a lot of risk, they'd get BA or, or single B. Uh, so, But you knew exactly what you were going to get. Everything in the package was that quality. And what happened is banks 
got greedy. And not just banks, other financial institutions too. They got greedy and pretended that uh, uh, BAA mortgages were AAA mortgages. So they, they thought, well, gee, we'll just put a bunch of them together. No one will know the difference. And, uh, uh, and we'll just market them. And in many cases, you just had to trust what they put in there was what they said it is. And, well, let me, of course, but, but let me ask, and Freddie Mac was, would guarantee it. Uh, 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 so, so there was a me. guarantee by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. You're saying that they were guaranteeing loans that they didn't know what they, that they were, in they, effect, poor loans. No, they were, banks, they were misrepresented banks. loans. Okay. And, but, but the idea of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac was good because they wanted to help Joe Sixpack be able to get a mortgage at a lower rate. And the way to do it was to package a bunch of them together and put all the same credit together so that financial institutions would buy them. So, Peter Frazier, you were president at the time that Freddie Mae and or Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were instituted. Would you put it in again? If, if if so, what protections would you put in? Because transparently, if you give it some thought, if banks are in that situation, of course, they're trying to make money, uh, they would have a tendency to do that. So there were no protections. How would you, if you're going to put it in again, uh, how would you protect it to keep that from happening? Because I think it was logical that it would be abused. Well, I guess what you would do is realizing that you can't trust everybody uh, you'd be more careful who you bought the mortgages from. One thing I would do that I just cannot believe the government doesn't do is for every mortgage that Bank of America issues or Wells Fargo or Citicorp issues, make the bank keep 20% of it themselves and put 80% in the package. Well, if the bank has to keep some of the mortgage, they're going to be a lot more careful in who they give mortgages to, and what uh, rating they're going to put on it. Are you trying to tell me on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, that incentives matter, Peter Frazier? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I'm telling you that, and I'm also telling you sometimes in the financial industry, you can't trust everything that you've been told. <laughs> As opposed to the political world, of course. Yeah. Uh, I understand. So, so let me kind of a branch of that. Uh, after this crisis in 2007 and 8, the federal government in effect bailed out some banks, some companies, and not others. If I remember correctly, uh, Lyman Brothers went out of business, but others uh, received bailouts. Uh, what, what is your view with regard to the government being involved in bailing out any of these companies? You know, as a libertarian, uh, I think you have to be flexible. Um, the goals are wonderful, and it's nice to aim for them, but sometimes you can't get everything that you want. Um, this was a perfect example. There were mistakes made by, in the financial industry. Actually, it wasn't only the United States that was a risk. It was the world at risk. A lot of European companies bought some of our mortgages. Uh, countries uh, bought our mortgages. So um, I would say that I would say now 
that most people would have said we would have been much better off letting Lehman Brothers survive. Lehman Brothers, while not the best managed of the investment banking companies, um, they were a big powerhouse. And, but they had a lot of relationships all over the world. It's like an octopus. And I don't think the federal government quite realized how serious that was. And by killing Lehman Brothers, you endangered a lot of financial institutions that were involved with them all over the world. AIG, if you remember, that was rescued. And again, we found out that uh, their relationships, it's a world insurance company, and they had relationships all over the world, similar to Lehman Brothers, and it, that was the right thing to do. Um, unfortunately, we, we didn't punish a lot of the executives where we bailed the companies out. I, my impression is I think we made all the money back. But we, uh, the senior executives that may were responsible for some of this going on, I don't think were uh, punished appropriately. Well, in today's world, how would we quote punish unquote those senior executives? Uh, do you have a thought? Because I do not want. There's now a movement to say, oh, we should have minorities in every board of directors of companies, and we should have women and all. I don't want the government to tell a corporation who should be on its board of directors or who it should be its officers. And unless it's a unless it's a criminal action, which then prosecute it appropriately, but how would you do that? How would you have the government come in and reach into Lehman Brothers, for example, and have their their CEO or whomever punished? What what kind of punishment could you come up with? Well, I think the point you're making, and I think it's a good one, if, if in capitalistic uh, countries, the corporations act responsibly, the government doesn't need to be involved. Uh, look at Boeing. Uh, and people are starting to blame the FAA. Well, my God, it was Boeing that made all the mistakes. And uh, we can't depend on the government. Uh, first of all, I don't think we want the government interfering too much. But we also can't, if you're coming in as an outsider and trying to review things, you don't have the knowledge that someone that's working on projects every day uh, of their working uh, life. And uh, getting to your specific point, uh, you know, I would, I would uh, you, you, when you make a settlement with someone, you say that uh, a certain executive, uh, uh, you could take, uh, reduce their pay. You could, uh, you know, I'm, the, I'm, I'm getting a little bit over my head on this, but uh, there are ways that they uh, they sh- could have uh, been removed. Uh, it's just the fact that the CEOs uh, got away with it uh, completely. Well, I, I, it's a dilemma, Peter, and, and I agree, and you're grappling with it, and so am I. I'll bet you that the CEOs all had golden parachutes, so even if they were required to step down, they would have uh, had a very comfortable living. With regard to Boeing, because that's an interesting example with their Supermax 737, for example, um, 
it seemingly would be protected institutionally if the shareholders see that Boeing is in trouble, which it has been for a while. Its, its stock is going to go down. Its earnings are going to go down. The shareholders would reach up and demand that we get a new CEO or we get a change of leadership or whatever else. Uh, but it gets so large and the the insiders own so much stock, and the people that own the rest of the stock are not organized. So that that backup doesn't work either. I don't know. I'm over my head too. But but I, you're right. I don't want the government to be involved. I do see the banks in the with regard to the Fannie Mae Freddie Mac thing. Uh, the government of Iceland, I still remember made a huge mistake. They trusted the government of the United States of America and purchased a lot of those triple A securities, which were, you know, anyone would have seen that one of these was a bad loan, but they, they put, you know, 50,000 of those bad loans together and gave them a triple A rating. And the government of Iceland almost went out of business. So uh, we, we need as a, as a, uh, as a country though, to somehow grapple with these and reach some form of situation in which incentives do matter and the, the executives of these corporations have incentives not to cheat or to be held responsible. Uh, I, I don't know what it is except for a vote libertarian, I suppose. Uh, I do believe, like like you say, that we need some government interference in the marketplace. I happen to believe that uh, monopoly, uh, anti-monopoly laws should, should occur. Uh, I also, by the way, and we're going to take a break in a moment, but when you were talking earlier about social responsibility and that you need to have controls. Uh, when I was at UCLA, I was a U.S. history major, and my theme, my thesis was on the general strike in San Francisco on the at the wharf uh, back in the, it was the 1930s, where they these people who were, who were working in the wharf were, were just really taken advantage of, and, and they'd go out and negotiate in the morning saying, well, you know, you will carry so many baskets, you know, 100-pound baskets onto the, the ship. Uh, oh, you'll, you'll, you'll do it for 35 cents? Will somebody do it for 30 cents? How about for 25? And it really was, was harmful, and that's affected me for, for my lifetime. So I, I guess we're ending by saying life is complicated, Peter, but, but I think we both agree. Uh, you are a libertarian, are you not, Peter? Yeah, I am. Let me just add one thing before the break. So, uh, you know, Lehman wasn't really bankrupt. Lehman had a cash problem. And if they had gotten a loan, they would have made it. Um, Mm. uh, You know, and uh, now what's happened, as you know, uh, the government has required banks to keep more reserves. You know, if you can run a business and only put 5% down, then the 95% is working for you, but you're also extremely leveraged. Uh, and now they're putting, tw- they've got to keep 20% cash. And, uh, it, you know, they, they uh, uh, that I think is making the banking system uh, uh, more responsible. The other, th- one other final point. When I first got into the business, these major brokerage firms were all private, and the partners all owned the companies, and they were much more responsible because it was their money, and then they went public, and then it became someone else's money, and they got riskier, and I think that was a mistake, too. Okay. Okay, well, I'm going to vote for you for president, Peter, and you're going to have to figure these things out. But I'll give you, we're going to take our break now, so I'll give you a couple of minutes to figure it out, and then we'll put you on the, on the, on the table again. But in the meantime, let's, let's take that break and, and hear these messages. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. We are Americans You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray, and we are still on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, with my esteemed brother-in-law, friend, uh, and guest, now Peter Frazier, very successful man. And we've gone through this, very thoughtful. He is really an example that I show of somebody that's very successful in the business world that has a social conscience and combines them quite well. And I think he's showing that right now. But to, before we come back to, to Peter or my cunado, uh, my wife has encouraged me to intervent, put it, and show a little bit of silliness, or at least intentional silliness. This is usually where I do it. So, Peter... Somebody once said, eating my family and not using commas are my three favorite things. Eating my family and not using commas are my three favorite things. What do you think? It is, there's, there's an obligatory chuckle from my guests, and you, you have upheld that pretty well. So that's a the grammarian's. Uh, I'm joke. a math major. <laughs> okay. Well, so there we go. Now, I don't know if I heard deafening chuckles from our audience or not, but we'll have to kind of wait and see and get some feedback. So so to, we're toward the end now, Peter, of 2020. Uh, you have your finger on the pulse still, I'm sure, with regard to our economy, the stock situation, investing. Uh, what are your views in today's world about investing? 
Uh, it matters, of course, what stage you're at. If you're young and you have young children, as opposed to retired and the rest, so there, that certainly factors in. But, but what would you recommend to somebody to say in their 40s, uh, doing fairly well, fairly stable? What recommendations, without getting into specifics, but but what types of recommendations would you give to him or her with regard to investing today? Well, I'm I'm going to go earlier than the 40s. Uh, Americans uh, historically have not been good investors. Uh, they haven't been savers. Um, so uh, the, the, the thing I like to mention to people is the U.S. stock market over the last hundred years has doubled every seven years. So that means if you have $1 invested in seven years, you're going to have two. And then seven more years, you'll have four. And seven more years, you'll have eight. So if you start putting money in the market when you are 25 versus someone that puts it in when they're 32, the person at 25 will have twice as much money when they retire at age 65. Okay. I assume that you you recommend balanced investing uh, in different types of stocks or bonds. Uh, in fact, before the 2007-8 uh, problems, my wife, Grace, strongly recommended that I get involved in uh, uh, in uh, tax-free bonds, municipal bonds, which I did just to kind of keep peace in the family. Boy, did she save me some money. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the, the question. Yeah. yeah, well, I was just anticipating that uh, I assume you would recommend even these investors at age 25 or 30 that they be diversified, not just to go into well, stocks. Well, you know, initially, you knew, initially, I think they would should just, you can get the SPY, Sam, Peter, Yellow, and that is the 500 largest companies. You can buy it on the stock exchange, put it in a 401k or an IRA, and, and that I would start there. When you're young, you can take more risk. Uh, and it, then as you get older, you will diversify. Supposedly, uh, the, the older you get, the fewer stocks you have and the more bonds you have. But in this environment, with bonds, the 10-year bond yielding a little over one half a percent, you're not even uh, keeping up with inflation. No, that's right. And so you probably should be looking at high, there's some high quality companies that are yielding over 3% and they increase the dividend each year. Sure. So what's your view with regard to Social Security, Cunado? Uh, if you would have told me when I was 25 to start investing a certain amount of, say the same amount of money that I would pay into Social Security into a mutual fund or, or some stocks, uh, Social Security, of course, is not a lockbox. It's a pay-as-you-go. But I would have had, at my age now, uh, I'm a little older than 25, but uh, I would have, what, maybe 15 times what I would, as a, as a payout, what I'm getting from Social Security. Uh, is that a fact? And if that's the case, you as a libertarian, should we privatize Social Security, at least for, for young people now, and c carry out our obligations to this us older types? Well, the other thing that I just, I, I just don't understand, why didn't, as you point out, 
Everybody talks about the Social Security Trust Fund. There's no trust fund. Uh, there's nothing in the fund. It's a pay-as-you-go, as you say, uh, and people don't realize that. And uh, uh, why didn't the Social Security Administration go into stocks a long time ago? If they had gone into stocks, we wouldn't have this problem. I, I still don't understand why they don't go into stocks. Uh, I'm not saying put everything in stocks, but put half of it in stocks and half of it in bonds. They haven't done either one of those things. It's well, they, it just pay as you go. It's Milton Friedman that said, I think, that why should we trust economic decisions to people that do not pay a price for making bad decisions? They only yeah. pay a political price, not an economic price. So uh, I, I think what you say there is true. If the government, if Social Security were to put it into into stocks, then the federal government would be a lot more careful about what they're doing with regard to their political policies and be a little more, make a little more economic sense. The other thing that recurs to me, like you were saying, and, and I think I was as well, Peter, that, that uh, Al Gore lied to the American people when he was running, that he said, oh, the Social Security has a lockbox. Well, there's no lock, there's no box, and there's nothing, even <laughs> if there were a box, there wouldn't be anything in it. So politicians don't tell the truth all the time, do they? It's a liability, <laughs> an actuarial liability. <laughs> That's a great play on words. I like that one. So, so you are a libertarian. Uh, I have said numbers of times on this show and elsewhere that I believe the Libertarian Party is the only mainstream political party in our country today because most voters really are libertarian without knowing it. Uh, what are your views about that statement? Well, uh, Jim, have you ever seen a government-run organization that's well-managed? <laughs> I, I asked the question, and I'll ask it here, and, and my audience yeah. will never come back to me with an answer. Have you ever seen the government involve itself in the economy into the marketplace in which the prices did not go up and the quality of goods and services did not go down? Because <laughs> I point to education, I point to the healthcare industry. That's just, I think we're both on the same page there. So, well, so look yes. at our president. Our president's telling that he has no confidence in the post office. <laughs> uh, you mean FedEx does a better job than the post office? I can tell you a quick story. Uh, I had, uh, a couple of years ago, I had two packages that I had to uh, mail, so to speak. Uh, one, I had to go through the post office, uh, which I, I just hate doing. And the other, I went to UPS. Uh, I went to the post office. There was a long line. There was one person at the counter. There were two other people stacking shelves in the back, not paying any attention to us. I finally got up, and the guy tells me, well, I, I need this document. It's over there on the shelf. And uh, so I get off, go get the document, get in line again, number eight, wait, get up to the front, he said, you also need this document. <laughs> and I go back again, and 40 minutes later, I'm through. I go over to UPS, and the person says to me, here, I'll take care of that. Uh, that's going to be $5.25. Yep. And the sad thing about it, Jim, is that 
employees of Federal Express and UPS make less, less money than the post office people do, and yet they're much more efficient. Well, Peter, did you hear this, that uh, FedEx and UPS are thinking about a merger, and the name of the new company is going to be Fed Up? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I'll do what yeah. I can here, but, but you know, I, I sympathize. You know, it's, it's, the way I describe it as well, if you're interested in the difference between the private sector and the public sector, think mosquito nets. And people say, oh, what's he talking about now? Well, we all know that there is still malaria in many places around the world, many in Africa. And it's determined that for every mosquito net you get on the ground to save to help somebody when they're sleeping, you're going to save about 10% of the people from getting malaria and save some lives. But it's the same mosquito net. It costs the private foundation something like $6.12 per mosquito net on the ground, and it costs the federal government something like $15. It's just, it's just the same mosquito net, but, but they just do it much more effectively. So you've certainly convinced me and of course the libertarian party underscores the uh, the private sector and free enterprise system we also have a social conscience as well but that they are combined just like you're talking about so uh, I have, I know that you've been heavily involved Peter in in numbers of different private groups uh, I mentioned them in the introduction let's talk about the University of California uh, you've been on the Alumni Association and now you say that you're also you told me something earlier today about the Botanical Gardens just I love the University of California uh, all around I'm the little brother I'm down at UCLA big big sister is up at Cal Berkeley but uh, tell us a little bit about what that wonderful institution is doing well, for people that uh, are unfamiliar uh, with University of California system, uh, there are 10 campuses, and uh, Cal Berkeley is the first uh, campus, and uh, Jim, it's not the, the big sister, it's the big brother. Okay. Uh, UCLA um, it was number two, uh, and there's eight others. Uh, the... Um, University of California has done an outstanding job. The whole system has done an outstanding job of providing a quality education for uh, people uh, regardless of their financial background. And there's a lot of people around the country, as you know, that come from families that are financially challenged, and they're very smart. But unfortunately, uh, many of them, don't get a proper education. And uh, I think most people know what a Pell Grant is. Pell Grant is a federal government program that gives scholarships to uh, 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 financially challenged students. Cal Berkeley gives more Pell, has more Pell Grant students than the entire Ivy League and Stanford combined. That is their focus, and I think the University of California system does an incredible job of providing a quality education for people regardless of their financial background. Peter, um, I'm concerned, and I, I'm not as close to it as you, 
the word is that there's a lot of socialism being taught now at Cal. Cal has always been a little more liberal. You had the free speech movement and Sathergate and the rest of that, all of which is fine. But but do you share my concern? Are we teaching the, the benefits of the free enterprise system? Uh, Milton Friedman says no no people have ever raised themselves out of poverty except through a system of, of uh, the private enterprise and the rest. Uh, do you share my concern about the, the quality of teaching on that subject at Cal? Well, of course, you know, uh, most of those uh, 10 campuses have a business school, and they have economics departments. Um, you know, I think one thing, uh, people that work for the university, I have, you know, I've gotten to know quite a few Cal professors, and, you know, when I, you see this uh, person fired from Disney and given $45 million to go away, you kind of scratch your head. And I, excuse me, I talked to them, the professors, and, you know, their, their attitude is, you know, they really don't pay a lot of attention on that. Making a lot of money is not important to them. Doing a good job and educating people. And there's a tremendous pride at Cal Berkeley in working with uh, younger uh, people of color, uh, financially challenged students. Um, they could probably go to a private school and make more money. Um, I think generally in education, most people uh, by nature are more liberal. I wouldn't say socialistic. I would say they're just liberal. Uh, I think, you know, capitalists tend to be more um, uh, conservative. Uh, so I know lots of, you know, Cal professors, I, they're more liberal than I am, but, uh, they're still great people and they're doing a wonderful job in educating uh, people in California. Good. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, you know, when you and I were in school, when I was at UCLA, there was no tuition. We had, I think it was like night courses back in the dark ages, but we had something like $90 a semester for student activity fees or something. But back then, I think that the state of California was subsidizing, was was funding UCLA and Cal and the others uh, by, you know, 85%. Now, as I understand it, it's down to something like 15%. Is that accurate? And how do you see this playing out, Peter Fraser? Last year, it was 11%. Uh. And so the University of California has to get the other 89% somewhere else. But interestingly enough, even though the state only pays 11%, and this is really true, I think, I'm hearing from most uh, public education uh, institutions around the country, uh, the states uh, are spending their money elsewhere, uh, but um, of course at Cal, they only pay eleven percent, but they want to have a hundred percent control. Of course. So where does the other money come from? I know that the tuition has been raised, uh, donations, I suppose. But uh, are they cutting back? Uh, are they are they providing the services that they did before? <clears throat> I'm just interested. Well, I, you know, I think the professors at uh, the public schools, uh, public universities are not paid as much as the private ones. Uh, as you pointed out, it, it wasn't tuition. It was called fees when you and I were there. And uh, 
now it's gone from what was it a hundred a hundred dollars to twenty five hundred. So tell us about the botanical gardens. Uh, you had mentioned this earlier. I had not heard any of this. What's your involvement and what's going on at the botanical gardens at the University of California at Berkeley? Well, the, the uh, botanical gardens uh, is... Uh, it, it, the t- botanical gardens at Cal is uh, a very interesting place. It, it, uh, the garden is divided into six different areas, different... Uh, areas all over the world. And Berkeley has ideal climate for uh, a moderate climate. So it is uh, much better than if you're having a university in the desert, so to speak, or one where you have just severe cold in North Dakota. Um, And so they have these plants, different kinds of plants, which they've collected over the last hundred years. Interestingly enough, Jim, they have over 2,000 plants on premise that don't exist in the country from which they came because of human activity. Mm. And as you know, all over the world, uh, people are coming in, building roads, building bridges, building houses, building uh, 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 offices, and they're tearing down this and tearing down that, and or they're spilling... Uh, garbage around, uh, and uh, so a lot of this has been damaged. And uh, what the university is doing is they are propagating these plants, and they are de- identifying responsible agents in the countries from which they came, and they're giving them back to these people so they can restore them in the country from which they came. Well, that's great. So they have it's just about very. I'm I'm not I'm not that knowledgeable on plants, but I've gotten to know about it, and it is just un. It, they're just it's very exciting. Some of these plants almost act like a a live animal. The way uh, they react. There's plants that can uh, reach out and grab insects, and it's yeah. it's just a very interesting place. So some of them react differently to my jokes than others. Is that what you're saying too? Pardon me. I did. Some some of these plants would react differently to some of my attempts at humor, my jokes, than others. Uh, I I think they'd all die. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to shield them from that. But so. Um, <laughs> You are also involved with Save the Redwoods, and and I my favorite charity actually is the Nature Conservancy. I think that they just do marvelous things to the degree that I and I had one of my guests, Liz Harvey from the Nature Conservancy, back on November fifteenth of two thousand nineteen, and anyone can go back on demand and listen to any of these episodes. But but uh, they just they do better than government. I think that all of these private foundations just do a much better job than government. Tell us about Save the Redwoods. What is your your goal, and, and how are, what is the organization, and what are your accomplishments? Well, for people that aren't familiar with them, the, the redwood gr- uh, trees grow from about 12 miles north of the California border in Oregon down to below Monterey Bay, which is probably... Uh, the uh, bottom of Northern California. And uh, they're on the coast. They uh, don't like to be 
more than 100 miles or maybe even 70 miles away from uh, the water, the ocean. And uh, they don't like to be any higher than 500 feet. The Coast Redwood is the tallest tree in the world. There's one up in northern, uh, north northern California that is 379 feet tall. And you ask me how can they get so tall, they can get up to 40% of their water needs through their branches. So gravity only takes water up the root system and the trunk about 200 feet. And uh, so the rest, the redwoods can get from the branches. Well, now, uh, the other thing about the coast redwood, it is the, per square foot, the largest consumer of CO2 of any tree in the world. Mm. Uh, Save the Redwoods was started a little over 100 years ago by four men who were camping and heard about uh, some of these 2,500-year-old uh, trees that were being cut down for lumber. And they said, we've got to do something about that. And uh, they got in a car and drove up there, and it was on high, Highway 101, and they saw these gigantic trees just lying on their side. And... The, the uh, highway was going to be uh, asphalt. It was uh, a dirt then, and they said, well, more trucks will get up there, and they'll cut more trees down. So they went down to San Francisco and started Save the Redwoods. Unfortunately, by the time they got going, they'd only been able to protect the remaining 5% of the trees. The other 95% have been cut. But their job now, uh, I would say they've probably gotten 80% of that 5% protected uh, forever. They're in parks. And, uh, and now what they're doing is they're going through the forest uh, to try and um, reestablish forests, clear out uh, forests that are uh, too... Uh, there's too many trees touching each other, and, uh, and uh, they're also, as you know, we have a lot of forest fires going on. They're going and taking out what they call fuel. Some of this fuel, because of Smokey the Bear in the last 40 years, some of the fuel around these trees is four feet high, and when it's, the fire gets going on these trees, at that level, it can jump up into the branches and go all the way up to the canopy. When it gets in the canopy, it jumps from one tree to the next, and it's much sure. harder to put out. So, man, so really, what too. they're doing now is they're restoring all the forest. They've protected most of the old growth wedge trees. They're still trying to get the rest. That's they're true. also working on the Sequoia Gigantea, which is up near Yosemite. And that is, per square foot, the largest tree, not the tallest, the largest bulk. And uh, they have uh, now probably protected 90% of them uh, from human demolition, and they're working on the remainder, r- remaining 
But they're working with the state and federal parks now actively to try and uh, prevent these forest fires from being so dangerous. Yes, indeed. Well, there's a there are great public-private partnerships, and uh, I, I say, Peter, these these various organizations. Uh, I'll save the redwoods is there too. You're also involved with something we're running out of time to save Mount Diablo. But it's important for us all to look around about us and see our natural resources, and it's a balance. And we want people to be able to enjoy them, but we also want them to be here for our children. So, ladies and gentlemen, you have you have heard someone I mentioned as being the most successful, one of the finest human beings I know. You can tell the caring in his voice. You can tell the success. You can tell the, how he uh, he's worth listening to. Well, I tell you, as a financial advisor or really as a citizen of our country. Peter Frazier, thank you. Happy uh, 52 years married to my sister, Robin. Uh, you have a lot of endurance, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll go into that privately. But uh, my sister's a wonderful lady, and she married a wonderful man. So that's it, folks. Uh, I hope you don't find this to be too sentimental, but uh, we cover all the bases on All Rise. Listen to us again. Go back and listen to the Nature Conservancy back in November 15 of 2019, or any other on demand as you wish. We try to cover the bases, talk about various issues directly, honestly, and as fully as we can. In the meantime, then, listen to us again next week. And this is Judge Jim Gray with my friend and, and brother-in-law, Cunado Peter Frazier, saying, life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.